This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. Daphna, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. We're recording post call. So You're <laughs> recording post call. Post call. Yeah, I'm post. <laughs> but I think I, you know, if I can get four hours of sleep, then I can function. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but five is optimal, but four is the necessary. I ha- <clears throat> not that I've ever really gotten a, a full night's sleep at the hospital. Right. I'm, even like. Even on a good like, night, yeah. Even on a good night, I wake up at randomly at two. Like I, yeah, I just just sure. don't I don't sleep comfortably, so I don't even know. Like I'm always tired post call. It's quite quite bad. Quite bad. Yeah, I also I was trying to explain it to a friend. And it feels like, you know, when you have an infant at home and mm-hmm. even if you're sleeping, you're not like really sleeping. You're like always waiting exactly right. for somebody to wake you up. And if in the morning there is anything extra to be done, mm-hmm. whether it is on a patient, like for example, the last I was on call when? Saturday, 24. Yeah. So I was supposed to call Sunday morning. I had to go see like four babies in the nursery, right? Four discharges. <laughs> that- that's the worst case scenario. <laughs> All right. What I'm saying is that it's, it's, the kids were fine. It was easy. Yeah. What I'm saying is that that task of like seeing the patient, speaking to the parents, doing the notes, doing the discharge, that was it. I was done. I got home. I was, that's it. It's, I felt so, felt it so weak. It you over the edge. Yeah. It's like, man. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> so, okay. So we're talking today. What are we talking about today? IVH, intraventricular hemorrhage. Mm. I guess in the preterm infant, I guess that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you picked that topic and, you know, I thought, you know what, this is a good thing to like review stuff. And I learned a ton, surprisingly. Yeah. So I was like, man, every single time I'm surprised by how much I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, because you can't know everything. Um, and you feel like when you cram study those six, nine, maybe some people do 12 months for the boards. But the review books, which are so great, don't give can't give you like the full picture of for sure all the things. Like you can't, you just can't. It's just too much information. For sure. So, I mean, I'm loving the podcast because we're learning too. Yeah, no, for sure. And so for um, for today, I guess what we're gonna do is go over some of the basics, right? Of of IVH. And um, and to 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 review that, I found a Neo Reviews article written by Andrew uh, Whitelaw. I'm assuming it's pronounced Whitelaw, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it was so good. It's called Core Concepts Intraventricular Hemorrhage. Um, and I'm basically going to walk you through this paper because it was really really good. Some of the things about this paper I'm going to skip because I want to delve into them a bit uh, more details. Maybe I think it's going to be Wednesday. And uh, but the rest was was excellent. So without further ado, let's begin. And the first part of the discussion is is the anatomy and pathophysiology of IVH. Now, 
it's very interesting for the people who may not be familiar with this concept as to why preterm babies are more prone to intraventricular hemorrhage. Now, the reason for uh, the preterm infant's unique vulnerability, it's both partly anatomic and partly pathophysiologic. The site of the bleeding is usually uh, from the subependymal germinal matrix. Um, and eventually that bleeding may continue, rupture the ependymal lining, and fill the distended and distend the ventricular system, which is sort of what happens, what we see in, in IVH, right? Now, the germinal matrix is a place. So, what's the deal? Why, I mean, that's that's sort of my way to approach every subject. Is like, what's the deal with the germinal matrix, what right? Is the deal? <laughs> so, what is the deal, right? Why is there? Why is there all that stuff? So, the germinal matrix basically is is a factory, right? And it's a place that actively produces new brain brain cells that migrate outward. And earlier in the pregnancy, the germinal matrix produces neurons that migrate toward the cortex. Um, between 23 and 32 weeks of gestation, the germinal matrix produces glial cell, especially oligodendroglia, which basically lay down myelin sheath. And this production of brain cells requires increased quantities of substrate and energy, and therefore a rich blood supply. So now we start to understand a little bit uh, what's going on. So because the germinal matrix is the site of brain cell production, because in order to produce brain cells and that need to do all these tasks, we need energy, we need blood vessels there. So it's almost like, so basically, I don't know if you've ever seen um, like a construction site, if in your, in your yeah, area there's a, constru a construction site. And then I don't know if you've noticed like in the morning and in the, at lunch, there's like this little truck that comes in to feed the workers. So like there's like a little truck that has these takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, that's the germinal matrix vessels. It's like, it's like a construction site. The germinal matrix there is where new brain cells are made. It's temporary. Eventually uh, the brain cells will be formed and everything will be done. But in the meantime, they need food and they need supply. And so that's provided by these temporary blood vessels that we find there. That's my right. scientific, my scientific met metaphor. I like that. And, and of note, this is a this concept, while seemingly very simple, is is pretty high yield. Like it is. Oh yeah. It's a. It's a. They want you to know this specifically. Where does it yeah. happen? And why does it happen? What is the vulnerability? Now, what's interesting is that because um, these are not permanent blood vessels, the germinal matrix blood vessels have intrinsic differences that make them more prone to injury. And there's this article by Balab and colleagues that basically demonstrated that germinal matrix blood vessels have a paucity of parasites, which are the cells that encircle the endothelium. And the basal lamina is also very immature. And the glial fibrillary acidic protein uh, in the feet of the insheating astrocytes is deficient. Whether you remember all these different details is up to you, but the bottom line is that they are not your typical blood vessels. They have a little bit of peculiarities that make them more prone to injury. Now, the anatomic, the anatomic vulnerability in the first three postnatal postnatal days is compounded by this physio, by by this by these facts and this physiologic instability that we can see after preterm birth. Um, the preterm baby, as we've reviewed in the past, has a limited ability to autoregulate cerebral blood flow, and many complications of premature birth may result in fluctuating cerebral blood flow that could eventually lead to the rupture of these blood vessels. 
the combination of unstable pressure and flow in the cerebral circulation and the poorly supportive but plentiful blood vessels near the center of the brain accounts for the unique vulnerability of the, the uh, to IVH in preterm infant in the period right after birth. So this is sort of the, the introduction to why this is a problem. Now, in terms of uh, the, the, the article goes into this, uh, this section on clinical signs, right? And I was wondering, like, what are they going to talk about? And I found that they mentioned something that I was not familiar with. So there's, there's been many attempts to, to try to figure out, like, can we identify some clinical signs specifically associated with IVH? And there's this study that they mention of structured neurologic exams and cranial ultrasounds in 100 infants done by this uh, group uh, led by Dubowitz and colleagues. And basically, they looked at what could be specific to IVH. And what they found was that there was impaired visual tracking, an abnormally tight popliteal angle, and roving eye movements correlated strongly with the presence of IVH. Um, other symptoms obviously include hypotonia, decreased uh, spontaneous movements. But I went and, and dug for this article, and it was it was written in 1981. So to be honest with you, it's it remains to be seen whether uh, this is still applicable. Specifically, you could, you could hardly find it on the internet. <laughs> that one was easy. There was some that gave me trouble. This one was actually. I have a feeling that at, before. Anything past 1985, they don't. The journals don't care anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're like, you can have this one. But obviously, since 1981, the 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 field has evolved tremendously. So it's not the same babies that we're talking about anymore. And so I'm wondering if whatever they're describing is even more applicable. But it was kind of neat that they looked at this popliteal angle stuff. And so yeah. Um, and and the article in the New Reviews article, they mentioned that like. They're very, they're very humble, saying that it's very common for a baby to have a significant IVH without the nurses and the medical staff noticing any clinical signs. And, and God knows we've all been there where it's like, could the baby have bled? Could the baby not have bled? It's very difficult to know. But what you can um, often see is this large drop in hematocrit if you're measuring it frequently enough. And potentially, in the case of parenchymal infarction, electrical seizure activity not in the context of IVH as well. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis. So do you, uh, you, you know, right? Do you know, you know the classification that we use? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My mentor, know? Dr. Weiss, um, always spent a lot of time distinguishing between the two classification systems. So, so the, the classification that most of us use is the one uh, described by Dr. Papil, Dr. Luen Papil, who uh, at the time was um, in New Mexico when she published this paper. And the paper dates back from 1978, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, it's kind of nuts that this this sort of sort of held up. It's sort of held up, right? Um, and we'll talk about why it, it only sort of held up and not held up all the way. <laughs> um, but one little tidbit and historical fact that I didn't know is that Dr. Papil defined to different grades of IVH based on CAT scans that were done on babies. It was not done on via ultrasound. And that 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 uh, piece of information escaped me until until I reviewed these papers. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, because we're not using CAT scans. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> and but I'm not even yeah. it does it does help explain well you're gonna you're gonna talk to it, us about it, but uh, the kind of change in thought about mm-hmm. the most severe IVH, um, having yeah. that uh, CT scan information. That, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. 
So uh, let's go through the different grades. And, and I think this is, again, pretty high yield and, and we need to review this. So grade one IVH refers to hemorrhage that is subependymal and confined to the germinal matrix, right? So the blood remains within that matrix of blood vessels. Grade two refers to hemorrhage that is definitely in the lumen of a lateral ventricle, but the amount of blood is not really sufficient to distend the ventricle. Grade three refers to um, hemorrhage within the lumen of the lateral ventricle or ventricles associated with dilation of the ventricle um, according to Papier's classification. Now, interestingly enough, <clears throat> this led to a few questions, which were, well, if we're seeing dilation, how do I know that this dilation is due to the blood or maybe just like, you know, there's a large CSF fluid ventricle, and maybe that's what's enlarging the ventricle. So how do we know? And interestingly enough, Volpe uh, clarified this um, and this specific definition of grade three by, by saying IV, an IVH where more than 50% of the ventricular area on parasagittal view, usually distending the lateral ventricle so that the blood really occupies a significant, more than half of the portion of the ventricle. And I think that's very important to clarify. Now, in terms of grade four, and I'm going to ask you to just put this in your uh, transient memory because we don't need to stick to that definition, but the grade four IVH refers to a combination of blood within the lateral ventricle and an echogenic area, often fan-shaped in the periventricular tissue that is a, in apparent continuity with the uh, intraventricular blood. Uh, and in the early days, this was considered an extension of IVH, but its true nature is really not that, and we're going to go into that in a minute. So what is the epidemiology of, of, of IVH, right? So obviously, we probably are all familiar with this fact, but the most, the most important and the most uh, prominent risk factor is prematurity, right? I mean, uh, the more premature you are, the more at risk you are. Um, there are definitely other risk factors. Uh, RDS is one of them. And any complication of RDS, including like um, a pneumothorax, uh, fluctuating arterial blood pressures, early hypotension, reperfusion, all these, all these swings in, in perfusion could, could be potentially an insult that could cause uh, IVH. Some have reported that male sex is a risk factor. Um, and hypothermia also is something that is reported to influence the incidence of IVH. So, um, yeah, that, that, that temperature regulation, thermal regulation at uh, delivery is, uh, is important. Um, in terms of the incidence, there's, I've, I saw some discrepancy in terms of the numbers that I read, but basically the article that I read in your reviews stated that 90% of IVH is apparent by day of life seven. And they said that 78% are apparent by 72 hours. Now, I had read in a different resource, which was the Neonatology Review textbooks, that uh, by 24 hours, you can see up to 50% of IVH, mm -hmm. and that by 72 hours, you usually catch more than what was referenced here, 78%, but closer to 90%, and that by seven days, it's closer to like 95%. Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly sure um, which one is correct. However, there is this progressive uh, increase in your in your likelihood of of capturing these these bleeds as you get from 24 to 72 to seven days of life. Um, yeah. Well, and and that those first I mean, those first 24 hours are critical. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the article was also mentioning something about like 
the possibility of diagnosing these things very close to delivery or even intrauterine. But usually this then becomes um, things that are associated with coagulopathy, things like that. So I don't want to get into too much of that. What's the incidence? I have to uh, have to get moving. I'm running behind. Um, but what is the incidence of IVH? And, and that, I think, is an, a question that's hard to answer. It has changed significantly over the years based on how our care for a newborn has improved. Uh, according to Fenneroff and Martin, the incidence is about 5 to 11% for all IVH grade across NICU babies. But I think we'll have in the, in the presentation uh, that we will uh, put on the website the different graphs. And basically, you can't really use a single number to find the incidence of IVH because if you're 22-weeker, it's like quite high. It's like between 30 and 40% uh, at best from most of the studies I found. And if you are a 31-weeker, it's very, very, very low. So it really depends on when you're looking at the data you're looking at and what is the gestational age. Another important factor about incidence is that it's very variable between centers, and that's why you have all these QI projects because it's really, um, it's really not straightforward. It's not something that has normalized across the different centers around the globe, and it's still a lot of variability. Um, prognosis is something that we're going to talk to Dr. Weiss about on Thursday, but um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what this article mentioned here, that the, and that's something that we've learned not too long ago, and that's quite important, but that the current evidence suggests that any IVH grade has a deleterious impact on long-term neurodevelopmental mental outcome. And I think there was this, this idea that like, oh, if you have grade one, grade two, it's all going to be fine. If you have grade three, grade four, that's the one that's bad. But they are referencing uh, articles by uh, Patra and Associates that really showed that in infants whose birth weight were less than a kilo, uh, cerebral palsy, low mental developmental index, and total neurodevelopmental impairment were high were higher, I'm sorry, in infants who had grade one and two IVH compared to those who didn't have any IVH. And in a survey of studies of large IVH without parenchymal infarction, so that would be like a grade three, uh, Volpe and colleagues estimated that 50% of survivors had, had a definite neurological consequence. So, yeah. so before I get into some intervention and treatment stuff and then close out today, what is the deal with grade four? right? Mm -hmm. So what is the deal with grade four IVH people? So it's not a hemorrhagic process, basically. That's the first thing you need to know. And it's really um, better understood basically as a different pathology altogether. Um, now, I'm so sorry. Um, now, the veins from the periventricular white matter called the medullary veins drain blood into the terminal vein. And I'll put a graph on the presentation. And basically, these veins that drain into this terminal vein, right, that terminal vein runs through the germinal matrix, okay? So it's like making its way right down smack in the middle of the germinal matrix. Now, if you have an IVH, you have a hematoma in the germinal matrix, it can therefore partially or completely occlude the venous drainage and increase venous pressure, right? So now, if that vein that's draining these parenchymal areas is running through the germinal matrix and the germinal matrix is swollen, there's a hematoma, that could actually squeeze this terminal vein. And when combined with hypotension or hypoxemia, this circumstance can contribute to infarction, which is localized to the area with venous obstruction. And that's why grade four is not really a hemorrhage, but more of an infarction. But it does still fit in our discussion because it's as a consequence of something happening in the germinal matrix. But it's not what we 
what we said earlier that like it was thought to be an extension. It's not really an extension, maybe a consequence, but it's not a progression. The um, so we we talked about that. So this process then leads to liquefactive necrosis and poroencephalic cyst formation, which basically means that you're going to get a hole. Basically, the brain matter is going to die, and there's going to be a hole. And according to the paper, if you scan every day. Uh, after uh, a grade four happens, their experience is that six days is the earliest that an echolucency can be visible. Because sometimes we say, oh, it takes about like two to three weeks for us to see this on, on ultrasound. But they've said that the earliest they've seen it is as, as early as six days after this infarction happens. Now, the risk of subsequent disability relates to the size and the location of the parenchymal injury. Lesions that measure less than a centimeter may not be associated with subsequent CP, cerebral palsy, sorry, uh, particularly if located in the frontoparietal area. Now, when you have extensive unilateral infarction involving the frontal, parietal, parietal, and occipital areas, major motor deficits, spastic hemiplegia, or asymmetric quadriplegia are found in more than 80% of cases. Cognitive outcomes, they say, is more variable. Now, if the unilateral infarction is large enough to produce midline shift, the disability is increased even further, Extensive bilateral parenchymal lesions are associated with 100% um, severe motor and cognitive disability. Okay, so interventions to reduce antenatal, uh, to reduce IVH. There's some antenatal stuff. Uh, antenatal. What? I'm going to do those. Okay. Are you going to talk about endomethacin? No. <laughs> are you doing antenatal? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk about postnatal then because... I think the whole idea of endomethacin, it can be like a whole week's tough discussion in and of itself. But there was some data that had shown that if... What? That's why I didn't talk about it. <laughs> it's like, it was Pandora's box. I was reviewing and then I got That's to this right. point and I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> now this is... So I'm, I decided to just slowly, without making too much noise, back out without waking up the demons of endomethacin. But the bottom line is that there's a lot of data that's been published on the subject. There were some data that has shown that uh, giving endomethacin prophylactically could reduce IVH. But the theory behind the potential effectiveness of endomethacin is that it may it, it's, its effect would be by reducing cerebral blood flow, cyclooxygenase activity, and free radical generation and by uh, or by accelerating physical maturation of the microvessels of the general matrix. Now, there's many studies that have been done. The long-term outcomes have, I mean, I, have, I, I don't think that the studies were able to find that there was a long-term benefit to endomethacin prophylaxis. Um, and in a more recent study that I found, I'm going to post that graph because they basically looked at 12 NICUs over some significant amount of years, and they saw how much indocin were they using to prevent IVH. And what they found was that whether they were using it or not using it, the incidence of IVH didn't move very much. They, they couldn't really find the strong correlation. And so it doesn't appear to be um, a, a mainstay of, of prevention. Uh, and I'm going to leave it at that. And if mm -hmm. you want us to talk about endomethacin, this will be the topic of another uh, Neo Review uh, mm -hmm. podcast. We could do a whole week on endomethacin. Yeah, <laughs> stupid endomethacin. Because don't, I mean, PDA, right? I'm just going to say the word PDA and then we'll leave it at that. Finally, in terms of treatment, um, the, the the idea behind treatment is is interesting. There's one uh, things that, some things I'm going to talk about today, some things I'm going to talk about on Wednesday or tomorrow. I don't know, whenever I'm supposed to talk again. But symptomatic management is what's what matters. 
giving blood products, inotropes, volume, etc. If you have a large IVH and you see abnormal movements, an EEG is probably indicated. And then there's this thing called drift, um, which I'm not going to tell you much more about that because it's already 23 minutes, but that's pretty cool. And there's a lot of data on that. I mean, there's some data on that and I'm going to present that to you next time. So I thought this article from Neo Reviews was phenomenal. Um, I'm not trying to take credit for any of it. Everything I told you today came from there. So uh, really great job. I'm going to post it on on the website for people to access it. And then, um, and then yeah, that's really it for today. Sounds good, buddy. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.